Good to see you all today. Um, I want to uh, jump in if I could. Before we go into uh, the sermon for this morning, I, there's a little bit of family business that we were planning on announcing last week, but then we, you know, canceled service, and so we waited till this week. So uh, if you've been a part of Frontline for a little while, you know that we are one church in two locations. We have two campuses. Well, what you're sitting in right now has been called the North Campus on the north end of town, but on, in Byron Center on the south uh, side of town, we have uh, what we have called Frontline South Campus. And what you didn't know probably is that, uh, we, although we did this a couple years ago, we started the South Campus there um, in Byron Center. When we moved into the community, there was actually another Frontline Church already there in Byron Center. It's a church that's about 85 years old. They only changed their name to Frontline a few years ago. But you can imagine, uh, you know, kind of the confusion that's just created where there's Frontline Church and then there's Frontline South Campus in the same community. Uh, to make matters even worse, uh, our Frontline South Campus pastor, his name is John. You've met him before. He's been up here to speak several times. And it just so happens that the Frontline, the other Frontline Church in Byron Center, his, their pastor is also named John. Yes, that's correct. So you have two Pastor Johns and two Frontlines. So you can imagine it's literally has created some comical, ridiculous moments uh, in the community that we're trying to reach there. It's also created a little bit of awkwardness. I wouldn't say tension, but just awkwardness with the other church. And so we made a decision to change our name there in the community. And so uh, the, the folks at South Campus had an opportunity to vote on a few different name options. And so this is the name that they came up with. Frontline South Campus in Byron Center is now called the Center Church. Um, now, here's what you need to know about that. Absolutely nothing has changed in terms of our relationship with them. So some of you probably already seen this online or, or different places. And you've been kind of wondering, like, what, what exactly is going on here? Are they no longer a part of us? Uh, no, nothing, absolutely nothing has changed. They are still a campus of ours. They still serve under the same leadership, underneath the same uh, governance and everything. The only thing that has changed is the name. And the only reason for that is so that we can just have uh, a, a best opportunity possible reaching people in the community. So that doesn't affect you at all. It's just that you needed to know it. So now you know it. Aren't you glad? There you go. So officially, I, I got that out of the way. So uh, we're, just, we're praying for Center Church as they, they move forward, and they're going to be able to reach their community uh, going forward. So today I want to jump into um, the third week of this whole concept of church everywhere. What does it mean to be the church everywhere? My wife and I have four boys, and as my older two boys have gotten into their teenage years, I've noticed that disciplining them has had to morph a little bit. I've had to change kind of the ways... That, uh, that I discipline them. So when they get in trouble, it used to be when they got in trouble, I'd say, you're grounded. And they would be like, oh, you know, it was a big deal to be grounded. Uh, but then eventually it got to the point where we had to say, okay, you got in trouble, you're going to lose screens, right? Ooh. And when you take away screens, it was like, oh, that was a, such a big deal. Lately, it's been, you're going to lose your phone. If you get in trouble, now we're going to take your phone and that level of independence away from you. But if I really want to hit the pinnacle, like if they've really messed up and I really need to, you know, make it serious what's happened to them, then what I'll say is you're going to lose your phone, I'm going to take your phone, and then I'm going to show all your friends my dance moves on your Instagram account. <laughs> and when I say that, it's just like, oh, dad, no, please, whatever, whatever you do, just don't do that. I'm sorry, I'll do whatever you want. I'll wash the car for a month, you know, whatever it is. That's like the biggest deal that you could do to them is to embarrass them in front of their friends in some way. And uh, what, what I've observed about this is that what we are driven by, particularly as we get older, what we are most driven by is the way that we appear 
to other people. The way we're viewed by others is a major driver for why we do the things that we do. Uh, in fact, I would say we're living in a culture in an age with, um, especially with social media, where we're more and more focused on that. We're more and more focused on the image that we're presenting to others and the ways that we're viewed by other people. So on social media, you know, we take selfies. We, we never post the pictures of ourselves in our most humbling most meek moments, right? I mean, this is me right after I got benched by the coach. Here I am on the bench. We don't show those pictures. This is me right after I got fired. We, we don't post that. <laughs> the pictures that we post are the pictures where we look the most triumphant, where we look the most, you know, separated from our peers and sort of above the fray of humanity. Those are the pictures that we post. We even have filters to make us look better than what we really are in person, Right? In fact, doing that Facebook Live thing last uh, week, I went back and looked, and I was like, oh, man, do I really look that way? Oh, that's awful. I mean, it's, it's just we're so focused on that. And that's what makes this lesson that we're going to look at, that Jesus taught, so challenging and at the same time so liberating. We're going to look today at one of the final lessons that Jesus gave with, to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, 24 hours, less than 24 hours before he went to the cross, and um, we're talking about what it means to see ourselves, the church everywhere, the church as servants. So last, year, last week we talked about what does it mean to be baptized in the name of the Father and be the church's family, to see ourselves adopted into a new family. This week we're, we're saying what does it mean to be the church in the name of Jesus, the Son. And Jesus said, I have not come to be served. If you really want to understand me, he said, I have not come to be served, but I've come to serve. And I've come to offer myself uh, as a ransom. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, this is uh, John chapter 13. The gospel writer John tells us this story about what's happening. Verse 1 says, before the Passover celebration, and we know the Passover celebration was the Seder meal, right? We've experienced that together last month as a church. So before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Now that phrase, he loved them to the very end, there are some translations that translate that from the original Greek as he showed them the full extent of his love. Or one translation says, he showed them the fullest expression of his love for them. So what we learn right away about what Jesus is about to do is that according to John, this is the fullest expression of love that you can demonstrate for another human being. This is the fullest possible extent, the fullest possible expression of love that you can give. Now, we also notice that Jesus is gathered here with his disciples. These are the disciples who have followed him for the last three years of his life, who have been as close to him as possible, and these are his real family. And in fact, in one place in the Gospels, Jesus says, my disciples, those who follow me, are my real family. They are my brother, my sisters, my mother, my father. They are my real family. And what Jesus is about to do here, actually, I would say it is the hardest thing to do with the people who are living in your own home, who are the actual closest to you. And so if you can pick up on all this, John is trying to cue us in. What Jesus is doing here, it's at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, it's with the people who are closest to him, who have followed him the closest, and this is the fullest extent of his love, the fullest expression of love somebody can do for someone else. Okay, so this is a 401 level class that Jesus is about to give here. This is not a 101 level class. 
This is not kind of entry level, hey, you're new to discipleship, here's the welcome packet. This is like the graduate level program, okay? That's what we're about to, that's what we're about to read here. So Jesus goes, it goes on, John goes on. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So John wants us to know Judas, the betrayer, and Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. He's there, and he's part of this moment. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. So I want to just pause there for a second and talk about what Jesus is doing in this moment. Because this is another one of those moments where Jesus is interacting with something that would have been very common and very, um, very normal for the people of his day, for the original uh, readers of John's gospel. But to us today, we, we read this and we kind of go, okay, that's, that's weird. So what Jesus is doing here right now in foot washing is foot washing was a very, very common practice in the world at this time. So people walked everywhere they went in this part of the world at this time. And so as they would walk, and Jesus would walk with his disciples from town to town, um, their feet would just get covered with filth. And not just filth, as a matter of fact, because what you have to understand is there were no public restrooms at this time. And so the roads that they were walking on were little more than open sewers. And they, if they all didn't walk, they were traveling with animals. And so there was animal excrement, there was human excrement, and this is what they would walk through all the time. And so by the time they would get to their destination, it was very common when you go in the house, you wouldn't just like take off your sandals. You would actually, there would be a basin and there would be some water and there would be a towel. And so it was a very common practice. You would have your feet washed. Either you'd wash your own feet or if there was a servant in the house, it was the, the job of the lowest kind of person in, in the house to wash the feet of the guests, of the person of honor. And they would literally bow down and they would wash the filth and the excrement, all the junk off of people's feet. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Isn't this great? Hope you're hungry for lunch. Um, and so uh, that's what's happening here in this moment. Now, if you could take a layer deeper than that, there are several Jewish sources from this time that talk about the idea that rabbis would regularly wash the feet, or I'm sorry, uh, disciples would regularly wash the feet of their rabbis. So it was a common practice for disciples who were following their rabbi, literally as closely as they could, everywhere he went, they would wash their rabbi's feet as part of their service, as part of their learning and what they were doing. So this was probably not the first time that Jesus and his disciples interacted around foot washing. And in fact, I can kind of imagine they probably argued, just like my boys argue for who, who gets to have shotgun this week, you know what I mean, when you ride in the car or whatever. They would have probably argued with one another. Peter was like, no, you, John, you got to do it last week. You got, to, you got to wash Jesus' feet last time we came into the house. I get to do it this time. They probably had this, like, going back and forth rivalry. Who gets to wash our rabbi's feet today when we get to wherever it is that we're going to? And so Jesus, in this moment, when he takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet you have to put yourselves in their shoes. This would have been a shocking moment. It would have been culturally jarring. Uh, it would have raised a level of awkwardness and a, lot of, a level of tension 
that they would have not really known what to do with. Um, Later on, verse 12, after washing their feet, Jesus put on his robe again and he sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, you, God will bless you for what? For doing them. Now that you know these things, Jesus ends with, God will bless you if you do them. So the point of this moment where Jesus washes their feet as the humblest, lowest servant in the, in the house, it was, the point of it wasn't just for them to receive and get their feet washed. Oh, that's great. He washed my feet. The point, this was supposed to serve as an example for them to follow. This was Jesus literally modeling for them. This is how your relationships with one another should be. This is how you should interact with other people, with, with each other as the church, as uh, my disciples. And so he ends with saying, you will be blessed if you do this. Not blessed if you know this. Not blessed if you understand this. You'll actually be blessed if you do this. It's a lot easier to stand up here and talk about this in a sermon than it is for me to actually do this. Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you do this. So this is only for people who want to be blessed today. So if you don't want to be blessed, you can tune me out for the rest of the sermon. You can get on your phone and um, play Candy Crush or whatever. You don't have to listen. It's, oh, this is only for people who want to be blessed. And you're only going to be blessed if you actually do it. Not if you think about it or know about it or, man, I'll have to, food for thought. I'll have to take a class on that. You'll be blessed if you actually do this. So this is what Jesus is interacting with. Um, so go ahead. If you're looking for a, a statement to write down, foot washing is a posture that we take toward others. What Jesus was trying to enact here with his disciples was to get them to understand foot washing is actually a posture that we take in our relationships with other people. Now, most of the time, when we look at this passage of Scripture, when we look at this idea of foot washing, most of the time we view it through the lens of an individual level. So we think about foot washing is this posture that I take for other, toward other people. I humble myself and I serve others. And we think about our individual relationships And what's interesting is that this absolutely will transform your life on an individual level. It will. In your marriage, if you begin to look at your spouse and you begin to take the posture toward your your spouse of how can I serve them? Not how can I one-up them? How can I win the argument? How can I put them in their place and get them to acknowledge how great I am? If I humble myself and I say, God, how can I wash my spouse's feet? Your marriage will be transformed. Absolutely it will. It absolutely will make for a better marriage. Uh, If you're in conflict with someone and you're stuck, and you don't know how to get around this conflict you're having, if you kind of set aside whatever it is the argument is about, and you say, okay, I'm going to take this posture of servanthood. I'm going to take this posture of washing their feet, and God, just show me how I can begin to serve them. It absolutely will transform the conflict that you're in. It will transform the nature of the discussion. It actually does work on an individual level. It's true with your coworkers. It's true with your family, with your kids. It's true on that level, and we most often look at it on that level, But what you have to understand is that Jesus was giving this lesson on the night he was betrayed as one of his final lessons to his disciples 
that after his resurrection are going to start the church. So the dominant metaphor all throughout the New Testament is that the church is the body of Christ. So we are the incarnation of Christ. We are the manifestation of Jesus in our world today. We are literally, the term we use often is we are the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. We're the Jesus that people interact with and see as the church. That's what we are. So what Jesus is doing here is much more than just an individual level. He's saying corporately, you are, are to take this posture as the church, as my disciples, you are to take this posture of servanthood, of, of washing each other's feet. That's your posture corporately. And so we begin to think, how do we translate this? In North America in 2018, how do we translate this into the context of our church? How do we take the posture as a church? And when we talk about what does it mean to be the church everywhere, how do we do that? A foot washing, of servanthood. So if I could, I'd love to offer a thought um, some of you have seen this um, before, but how most churches are structured, I would say, in North America today, is you have a board, and the board runs the church, right? So there's a group of elected people who are the board, and they, they make all the decisions. They run the church. They make every decision for the church. And in this model, you hire some staff, and the staff's job is to serve. So we hire the professionals, and the professionals serve. That's their job. And who are they serving? Well, the congregation, of course. The congregation is served by the staff who are there to serve the members of the congregation, right? So in this model, the congregation become the, cu- the customers. They become the consumers. If you think of it in terms of a business model, this connects. This makes perfect sense to how we do things in our society today. The problem with this model uh, is that in this model, the world is basically ignored. And this is how churches go to the point where they're completely inward-focused And they dwindle down, and and you walk in, and it's like, man, nothing has changed here for 50 years, 60 years. How is that possible? It's because on this is the level. This is the the way the church is structured. On a corporate level, that's the ultimate effect. That's the impact that it has. And so at Frontline, we've tried to say we want to structure ourselves a little bit different. And I'll be very honest with you. I feel like there have been eras and seasons where we've— structured ourselves in a different way, and we've gotten this right, and I feel like we've really experienced um, some, some amazing things as a church. And then there's some other seasons, if I'm just being honest, where I don't feel like we've done anything different than this, and we've really struggled with this. It's one of those kind of things where Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you actually do it, but actually doing it is really hard to do. But what we've aimed at, what we've tried to say as a church is uh, we want to see ourselves as being structured where there's a board, and the board's job is to protect the church. So the board is a spiritual discernment group of, of people whose job is to protect the values and the vision of the church and basically keep us out of the weeds, keep us on mission. And in this model, there are staff, and the staff's job is to equip. Ephesians 4 says uh, that the role of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's a pastor's job description, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So who are the, pa- who are the staff equipping? You, the congregation. That's, that's what the congregation becomes, the group of people as the church, to put a serving towel over their arms and to say, we see ourselves, the posture we're going to take as the church, as the congregation members, is we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And so we are going to serve. We're going to see ourselves first and foremost as servants. That's what we are. And in this model, if, when, it, when you get it right, when it does happen corporately, the world is served. 
the world is impacted. People who are far from God learn about who God is from real-life human beings. They know about God's love because of human beings who are exemplifying God's love. And when the world is served, the church begins to live into, I think, what Jesus' vision for all of us actually was. So again, if you're looking for a statement to write down, I just say this. Not only does Jesus call us to serve in his church, he calls us to serve as his church. So we have ministries in the church. There is a tech booth back there where people serve. There's a worship arts team that you saw this morning. There are people who serve in this church. We have a children's ministry. We have a student ministry. We have a first impressions team that greets people at the door. And so we serve in the church. That's what we do. But we also serve as the church of Jesus Christ. That's the posture we're supposed to be taking with the world. We serve as his church. So, so what I'd love to just drill into in the next few minutes is this idea of Jesus ends this whole uh, ex- explanation with saying, you will be blessed if you do this. And I feel like that's the piece we miss a lot of times with this. Because we hear this and we go, oh, that's great, I'm called to be a servant. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Uh, but then we go, hey, you'll be blessed. Jesus says, no, you don't get it. Like, there's a blessing for you if you actually do this. And a lot of times we just kind of say, I don't get that piece of it. What's the blessing of serving? What was the blessing of wiping filth and excrement off of his disciples' feet? Where's the blessing in serving? Where is that? And so I believe the answer to that is right in the text. I gave you kind of the beginning and the end, but right in the middle of this passage, there's this encounter between Jesus and Peter. So as Jesus is going along, picture Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's just washed Judas' feet, who's about to betray him. Then he goes and he washes John's feet. And John and Peter were kind of rivals with one another. You see that in a few different places in the Gospels. And then Jesus finally gets to Peter and begins to wash Peter's feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I love this this moment, this little passage of scripture. Every time I read it, I feel like this moment between Jesus and Peter, this little interaction just jumps off the page and hits me because I see myself so much in Peter in this moment. You know what Peter's thinking right here? As Jesus comes to him, begins to wash his feet. Peter, what's going through Peter's head is he's thinking to himself, Jesus, hold on, you need me to serve you, Jesus. Right? That's why, isn't that why you called me? I mean, you called me so I could serve you. you. Jesus, I'm supposed to wash your feet. I'm the disciple. You're the rabbi. You need me to wash your feet. That's why I'm here. That's, my, that's what I get to do. I'm going to wash your feet. And oftentimes I see myself in that. Je- Jesus, you need me to preach this sermon. <laughs> right? You need me to lead your church. You need me to do all these important things. Obviously, I mean, I have skills and talents and abilities. Clearly, you've called me You cook because you need me, right, Jesus? And that's been my posture toward Christ many, at many points. And I love this encounter because what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, I don't want something from you right now in this moment. I want something for you. Peter, there's something for you I have. He says, Peter, you don't understand right now what I'm doing, but there's going to come a point where you actually do understand this. 
Why did Jesus say that? Because what Jesus knows in this moment as he's washing Peter's feet is that in less than 24 hours from now, Peter is about to betray Jesus. Peter doesn't know that's going to happen. Well, or at least he doesn't believe that's what's going to happen. But Jesus already knows that's exactly what's going to happen. And so he's saying to Peter, Peter, you need this. Have you ever had an experience in your life where as you were going through it, the, the, the dominant question that was in your mind was, God, why are you doing this? What are you trying to do? What, what are you up to? Has anybody ever had that where you're going through an experience, you're just like, God, what are you doing? I can't make sense of this. I, I don't understand wh- where you are. I don't understand why I feel so abandoned. I don't understand, are you angry at me? Am I being punished? Why, why am I going through this? In this moment, Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't get to understand sometimes while you're walking through an experience. There are some experiences in life you only get to understand in reverse. Looking back at them through your scars, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to betray me. You need this moment. You need this memory to look back on. That I, as your Lord, as your teacher, thought you were so valuable that I was willing to humble myself and wash your feet, even knowing what you were about to do. And, and I'm setting this example for what I'm calling you to be about, what I'm calling you to do with your life. Peter, I don't want something from you right now. I want something for you. Peter, what's, what's necessary for you right now is for you to just say yes. That's it. You don't need to understand how I'm going to work all this out. You don't need to understand what I'm doing right here in this moment. Peter, all that's necessary is for you to say yes, even if you don't understand the how. I believe that's the biggest barrier to why so many of us don't actually do this and serve. Why so many people in the church remain stagnant in their faith. They never experience the blessing of serving. And they basically view their Christianity as this is a time for me to receive and that's the only way I see it is just God uh, giving and, and receiving for me. There is the receiving. We need the Lord to, to wash us and to cleanse us. Baptism is this beautiful picture of that, of being washed and cleansed and, and being given a new life in Christ. But then Jesus says, I've given you a model to chase after. And so the way we step into it is we say yes before how. This has become kind of a big thing for us. A few months ago, we were talking about what does it mean that every single one of us has been given gifts and abilities and a purpose and a, wor- a work to do in the kingdom. And at the end of a message, I, I said, um, if you are sensing that there's something that God is calling you to do, I-, I invited you to stand up in the room. I said, I want those who are, who are saying yes before how to stand up. You don't need to understand the how, but today when, when they stood up, when people stood up, they were saying, God, I'm saying yes to you. I'm saying yes to whatever it is you're calling me to do. I'm saying yes to the mission and the purpose of, of my life, and I, even though I don't understand the how. And so we had this service. Some of you remember this. People stood up, and we prayed for them, and we have heard story after story uh, come in since that service. I've heard people who um, stood up on that morning and said yes before how, and the very next week, a job opportunity came out of the blue to do exactly what they were saying yes to God for, but they had no idea how, and this job opportunity came through. I've I've heard from other people where they said yes, and they they basically just surrendered to God, and financial provision came in the next week that they had no idea was coming for, and the only thing stopping them from, because they didn't know how the money was going to come in, and suddenly it was there the next week. Something powerful happens in our lives. We've seen people become foster parents since that Sunday. Uh, Something happens in our lives powerfully when we just say, yes, God. 
Peter in this moment, all that was required was just say, say yes. Just let him wash your feet. Let him cleanse your pride. Let him give you entrance into this new way of life because you're going to need it. Not because I need you to do something for me, Peter, but because you need this. You need this. And that's the secret. That's the blessing. The blessing is God doesn't need us. You want to know a little secret? We don't need you to serve here at Frontline. And the staff would probably hate me to say this, but uh, look around you. All this happened today without you if you're not serving. And next week, if you don't get involved in any ministry here and, and serve, it'll happen again next week without you. But here's the secret. You, there are some of you sitting here right now. God has placed things in your life, and you need this. You need to say yes before how. You need to just say, God, I'm just going to allow myself to be humbled. I'm just going to allow myself to step forward, even if I don't understand, even if it's uncomfortable for me. You need the blessing that God has for you and that he has for all of us when we say yes before how. About a month ago, I spoke. uh, I got the opportunity to to go to a fundraising event for an organization here in town called eQuest. And so I got a chance to speak at this fundraising thing about the impact that eQuest has had in our life as a family EQuest is a therapeutic horse riding uh, center here, just a little bit north of town. And so it's for people with special needs, and they, they actually go and they learn how to ride horses and be a part of this. And so our son, Aaron, uh, who has autism, uh, and for our family, this has been a big place for us. For years, Aaron has gone and ridden a horse there as part of the therapeutic training. So he goes and he rides Buck. Buck is the horse's name. I don't know why you would name the horse the very thing you do not want it to do. <laughs> when the person is on the horse, but he goes and he rides buck. And so, uh, and, and as part of it is they learn, you know, for people who have special needs, they learn um, motor skills, sensory skills, they learn relationships, they, have, they build a relationship with this horse, they learn interaction with others. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And so uh, I went and I spoke at this fundraiser. So if you can picture there were like these tables, right? And so I sat down with my wife, Carrie, after, at our table afterward, and this uh, older lady who was sitting at our table leans over to me, and she says, thank you. Thank you for what you said. And I recognized her immediately. I'd never talked to her before, but I recognized her as one of the volunteers. She was one of the sidewalkers that I had seen um, there at eQuest. So she was one of the people that walks alongside the horse and makes sure the person's okay and uh, serves there, helps to tack the horse and, and get it ready. And so we were talking, and I just asked her a question. I said, so tell me, how did you get involved with eQuest? And I was fully expecting her to say something like, well, you know, I had a special needs brother or sister. Usually, you know, that's the kind of responses you get. Um, but she didn't say that at all. She shocked me. Uh, and I, I said, how did you get involved with eQuest? And she said, well, I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Uh, she said, the way I first came to eQuest was um, I had to fulfill some community service obligations for uh, an event that had happened. And so I began to come in in the mornings. I began to work with the horses, and the horses hated me. Literally, like they, they would like freak out and run away. And so she said, one of the leaders came alongside me, pulled me aside, and said, the horses can actually smell the alcohol on you from the night before. So she would come in after, you know, she would, ha- she would still smell of the alcohol from the drinking she had been doing the night before, and the horses were reacting to this. And so she said, so I just decided to quit drinking Literally, like that day, I just quit drinking. And then she like winks at me. She goes, I had a little help from God, <laughs> uh, which I totally believe. 
Um, but, she, but literally, just cold turkey, just done. I'm just done drinking. And, and she said, and so I, I have no obligation to show up anymore. I'm not paid or anything, but uh, I still come every week, and I still uh, work at Equest, and I, I wouldn't miss it. There's not a week where I would miss it. I wouldn't miss it. I'll show up here, rain or shine, snow, whatever it is, every week I'm here. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I figured out I need this a whole lot more than they need me. And there's the blessing. Something happens when we just say yes before how. We see ourselves as being served first. And we realize the way we're wired and the way we're created, we were designed to serve. And we come alive when we do it. We are first and foremost people who are called to serve. I need this. I need to serve. And that when we say yes before how, we experience the blessing. When Jesus says, you'll be blessed, but only if you actually do this. That's the blessing that he's referring to.